If you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 13 through 29. If you don't have your Bibles, there are black Bibles in the pews in front of you. Mark chapter 9, verses 13 through 29. What is your greatest need this morning? Is it financial? Is it relational? Is your greatest need this morning physical, a particular health issue? What is the thing that if you could ask God to just do one thing for you this morning, if you could ask God to satisfy just one of the things that you feel like you need to have satisfied, this thing would be the thing. What would it be? If you're a visitor this morning, uh, you do not have the opportunity to meet a member of our church named Catherine. Catherine Berger is a member of this church, and she's not here with us this morning because she's in the hospital. She has a great need. Specifically, her great need is that she has some sort of mitochondrial disease that doctors can't understand. They don't fully comprehend the nature of her illness, and that's led to a cascade of other issues that are affecting her even now. We have members' meetings in this church, and a couple of members' meetings ago, I asked Katherine Berger to come up and to share a story with us. And I think that story is particularly relevant to this sermon this morning, so I'm going to recount it for you. While Katherine was at an airport, the airport in Huntsville, she was sitting in a wheelchair with her oxygen, and she's very ill, and she looks very ill, even on her best day. And a man came up to her, and he asked if he could pray for her physical healing. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with praying for physical healing. It's good to pray for physical healing. But what Catherine shared with us was that the man assumed her greatest need. She said something like this. This is a paraphrase. The man just assumed that my physical healing was the most pressing issue in my life. He didn't stop to think to ask me what I might need him to pray for. My kids, my family, spiritually. He didn't even stop to ask if I was a Christian to consider whether or not I even believed in the gospel. He just saw a sick woman and thought that my sickness was my greatest and most pressing need. The truth is, we're all prone to misjudging needs. Our own needs, the needs of other people, We look at other people's lives and we think, ah, I know what the most important thing in your life is. We look at our own lives and we think, nobody can understand our needs more than us. We think that our perspective is perfect, that it can never be blurred or flawed. What if your great need isn't your greatest need? What if the worst pain in your life is not the most pressing issue in your life? Well, today's text speaks of just such a scenario. So let's read it together. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. 
And when they came to the disciples, they saw a crowd, a great crowd, gathered around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? As today's text opens up, we see Jesus and three of his disciples coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. When they got to the bottom, they found the disciples in a dust-up with a crowd, which included the Sadducees. Jesus approaches the scene like a father going to break up a fight between quarreling kids, which I may have to do with my own daughter this morning if she doesn't behave. What's going on here? Well, the fact that Jesus deals with these crowded people like a, quarreling, like a group of quarreling children, it's only half right, right? Because the crowd actually sees Jesus and it runs up to him. And Jesus says, what's the deal? What's going on? And that's when we meet one of the characters of the story, a desperate father. Like Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue before him, this man has a sick child and he's desperate to see that sick child healed. Look at verses 17 and 18 where we read of the child having a spirit. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Now the spirit that this young man has makes him seize up, foam at the mouth, grind his teeth. The father says that the boy has a spirit an unclean spirit, a demon. 
And Jesus affirms that when he casts the Spirit out in verse 25. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. But as we read this account, this same account in the book of Matthew, Matthew says that the boy has epilepsy. Well, which one is it? Does the boy have a demon? Or is the boy epileptic? Well, if you look at the end of Matthew's account of this incident, you'll see that Matthew also understood the boy to have a spirit. 17, chapter 17, verse 18 reads this. Jesus commanded the demon and it came out of him. And the boy was healed from that time on. So it appears that both are true. It appears that the boy is epileptic and he does have an unclean spirit. So how are these two things connected? Epilepsy, demon? I don't know. Is that strange for you to hear a pastor stand up in the pulpit and say, I don't know? It shouldn't be. It's not unreasonable to assume that an evil spirit might assault a physical body in such a way as to make it seem like the body has epilepsy. Or even to cause epilepsy. What I can say for certain is that not every case of physical suffering is caused by demonic oppression. And yet we cannot assume, due to our modern biases, that no case of physical oppression is caused by demonic forces. I think the best approach that we can take with these issues is to maintain a spirit of reverent agnosticism on matters of demonology and sickness. Reverent agnosticism. Reverence means to hold with profound respect and deep mystery. Agnosticism means to admit that we don't have the knowledge. That is, we shouldn't attribute everything to a demon and we should not avoid the realities of the demonic. One evening, when we still lived in the jungle, I heard a knock at our door around midnight. It was the pastor of the church that we were partnering with. And he told me that his son, his 14-year-old son, was possessed by a demon. Now, I had had some experience several months before that that led me to be reassured in my confidence in the demonic. Nevertheless, when I got this knock at my door, my first thought was, we'll see. So I got on my motorcycle and I drove over to his house. And as I was pulling up to his home, I heard loud, ferocious screaming, unlike anything I had ever heard before. I didn't know if it was a human or a dying animal. As I walked into the house, this teenage boy's scream sent shivers down my spine. As I approached the young man's room, I saw him hovering like an animal in the corner with a knife in his hand. And the room was uncharacteristically hot. It was like a furnace, which was completely out of place on a cool jungle evening. Everyone in the room was sweating buckets. The young man was grunting and groaning and grinding his teeth. And he was looking at me 
out of the corner of his eye like a dog holding on to a last piece of meat that he would fight the world for. I won't go into the details of the rest of that night, but I will tell you this. I don't know if he had a demon. But I think it's likely. It's possible. There were other factors in the situation that might lead me to believe that maybe it was something else. But why do we always have to choose between either or? Why is it always binary? Why couldn't he maybe have been under the influence of something and be oppressed by demonic spirits? Is it not possible that a demon wanting to destroy the image of God in someone might lead them to take a substance that does that to them? We don't always have to choose between physical oppression and spiritual oppression. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's another, sometimes it's both. But I'm not a ghostbuster. I don't have a demon detector in my back pocket. And much harm has been done by people claiming that someone is oppressed by a demon when in fact they were just mentally and physically ill. On the other hand, much harm is currently being done by people who assume naturalistic causes for everything that ails us as human beings. If you can't find it in the physician's desk reference or the DSM, in these textbooks for medical and psychological treatment, well then it just doesn't exist. But everything that's wrong with us can't be explained by science. Returning to the Father, he tells Jesus that his intention was to bring the young man to Jesus. That was what he wanted to do. But Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and so he took the young boy to the disciples. Verse 17 says this, I brought my son to you. But verse 18 says, I asked your disciples. Now, we read here that the disciples were not able to cast out the demon. And that led to the big dust-up between the crowd and the Pharisees. Now remember, the disciples should have been able to handle this. In Mark chapter 6, we saw that Jesus gave the disciples authority over unclean spirits as he sent them out. We read this here. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Verse 13 says that they were able to cast out demons. And verse 30 shows the disciples coming back and gloating about it. Do you remember that? They come back and they're like, Jesus, listen, we were out there and we were doing exactly what you told us to do. And Jesus is like, oh, we'll feed these 5,000 people then if you're so great. And they couldn't. But the reason why he humbled them is because they had been using this authority to do the sorts of things that they should have been able to do in today's text. They should have been able to cast out this unclean spirit. So why couldn't they? Was it a lack of faith? In some sense, yes. And verse 19 certainly leads us to believe that. It says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? But I don't think when Jesus talks about this faithless generation that he's specifically rebuking the disciples for not having enough faith to cast this demon out. The reason I don't think so comes from verse 28. Here, as is often in the case of the book of Mark, when the disciples don't understand something or they mess something up, they wait till they get alone with Jesus and then they're like, hey Jesus, what's, what's going on, man? Like, 
Can you explain this to me? And here, in verse 28, we see that when they get alone with Jesus, they're like, Jesus, why couldn't we cast the demon out? What, what, what was wrong? And then Jesus tells them, well, you don't understand what kind of demon it is. This kind of demon can only be cast out by prayer. It wouldn't make any sense for the disciples to ask Jesus why they couldn't cast the demon out if Jesus had already told them it's because of your lack of faith. I think here Jesus' rebuke to this faithless generation is just to everyone who's present, none of whom are able to fully comprehend the reality of who Jesus is. When it comes to the disciples' ineffective ministry, Jesus tells them the reason why they couldn't cast it out. He says, you don't understand it. This type of demon can only be cast out by prayer. Look at verse 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, I don't know if Jesus means to give us a taxonomy of demons here. I don't think he's trying to show us, well, there's this kind of demon, and there's that kind of demon, and there's this kind of demon. I don't think you really see that kind of language being communicated in the Bible. Rather, I think here, in some sense, though, we must admit that there is a kind of demon that can only be cast out with prayer, which implies that there are some demons who can be cast out without prayer. Matthew is even clearer. He records Jesus as saying, that kind of spirit only comes out through prayer. Now, I wish I could tell you more about this kind of demon. But I can't. What kind of demon is it? For the second time in this sermon, I don't know. And I'm deeply okay with that. I don't think Jesus intends for us to have this super complicated, detailed understanding of demons. And anytime I see anyone who tries to develop this complex kind of demonology, what they usually end up doing is taking the little bit of data that they get from the Bible and combining it with a whole lot of Roman Catholic myth and then writing a book about it. 90% of which is drivel and unhelpful. The Bible other than a few places like what we see today, just doesn't really tell us a lot about demons. Sorry to disappoint. The Da Vinci Code is a lot of made-up nonsense. But to focus all of the attention on the unclean spirit from today's text is really to miss the point. The point is, the disciples didn't pray. So as I was preparing this sermon You know, sometimes I I write down questions on a blank piece of paper as I'm working through the text. I have to answer this question before I can make sense of this text. The question that I wrote down for today was, why didn't the disciples pray? Why did the disciples not pray? Well, part of the answer is that they've obviously had success without prayer. And so, because of their past success without prayer, they think they can just keep going. They think that they don't have to fully depend on God in order to accomplish what he's given them to do. And isn't that, in many ways, the story of our lives? So often, we only pray when we're driven to it. That's certainly been my experience as a pastor. I wish I could say that I prayed more regularly than I do, but the the truth is, 
I, I don't. I don't pray as much as I ought to. And so often I only pray when I'm driven to pray for members of the church. Rather than praying for the finances of this church, I only tend to pray when I look at the numbers and I'm driven to prayer. Rather than praying for each and every member's individual health, I so often only pray for a member of the church when I'm driven to it because of an issue in the life of this church. We don't pray for our marriages until things start to get rocky. We don't pray for our children's salvation until we start to see good evidence that they're not Christians. We don't start to pray for our church until it seems like it's falling apart at the seams. We don't pray for our own souls until it's obvious that we've already abandoned the faith. By that time, prayer seems kind of useless. The reason why we don't pray like we ought to is because we can do so much without prayer. We can do so much without praying to God. We could grow this church from 30 to 300 without prayer. We can raise good, respectable children who grow up to have good, beautiful families and good, respectable careers without praying for our children. We can go from bottom-level employee to upper management without ever praying to God. We can overcome addictions without prayer. I watched a video the other day where the guy was giving his testimony, but instead of giving glory to God, he was giving glory to jujitsu. I was a drug addict, but then I found jujitsu. It totally saved my life. There's so much we can do without prayer. But there's a limit. And unfortunately, because we are so quick to forget and so slow to remember, we often only find out what the limit is when it's too late. Once we failed, once our children have gone off the rails, once our marriage is on the verge of falling apart, once our church is in the middle of a split. Now, when I say that we can do many things without prayer, what you might hear me saying is that we can do a lot of things without talking to God. Well, that's partly what I mean, but not really. You see, prayer is talking to God, but it's not just talking to God. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's not less than that, but it's certainly more than that. Prayer, in a very real way, is us communicating our dependence on God. That's why every Sunday in this church, it's really strange for visitors how much time we spend praying. It's a lot. And one of the things that we do is a pastoral prayer every Sunday. And in that pastoral prayer, that's me as your shepherd trying to take all of us before God and showing our need for Him to move in our lives, to communicate our dependence. So what I mean to say is, we can do a lot in this life, even religious things without depending on God. And that should terrify us. If you have enough money, you don't need the Holy Spirit. If, if, we, if we as a church caught a windfall and somebody donated $2 million to us, we could grow this church and we would not need the Holy Spirit. I saw it all the time on the mission field. 
People were going down there and they were stacked with money. And any problem that came up, they would just throw money at it. Oh, we lost a boat. Well, all right, 10 grand, new boat, boom, done, you know. Maybe a prayer of thankfulness afterwards. This village is rejecting us. We'll buy new boat motors for all the, for all the leaders in the village. And now they'll receive us. Money can serve as a substitute for the Spirit of God in almost any situation. But what about when it can't? What about when all the money in the world cannot change our situation? What happens when our gifts and our talents, our money and our good looks, our education, what happens when all of that can't get us there, when it can't save us, when it can't fix the situation? Well, that's usually when we start to pray. But my question is, why don't we just pray from the get-go? God has been kind to remind us of our own inability to do things over and over again. He has shown us time and time again that we are man and only He is God. Why not just start out with a posture of humility and dependence on God? I think that that's the kind of prayer life God wants us to live. Paul says, pray without ceasing. In the book of Philippians, he says, pray always and in every situation. Can you do this thing that you're trying to do without prayer? Maybe. But maybe not. So why not just commit to communicating your dependence on God from the get-go? Glorify God by constantly depending on Him and communicating that dependence on Him. I heard someone say once that the way that you do anything is the way that you do everything. I think that shows in this church I'm slightly disorganized, and by slightly I mean greatly. I'm clunky, I'm, I'm rough, sometimes abrasive, and you kind of see that in the way that I do almost anything. Grant is super organized, very careful, very methodical, and you see that in the way that he does everything. Gentle. Michael is like the plodding camel, you know, just Captain Faithful. He's going to get there. Not too quick, but it's, it's going to happen. And you see that in the way that he does everything. So why don't we approach God in our lives with a posture of humility? Just make that a part of our lives. Just make that a part of who we are. So that we don't have to be humbled. You know, if, if you're not humble, you're going to get humbled. And rather than having to get humble, just stay humble. And the disciples were humbled in this account. The disciples were humbled because of their self-reliance. And because they failed, a young man is paying the price. This boy is suffering. And he's, as he's brought to Jesus, his suffering only increases. Verse 20 says that as soon as he saw Jesus, he began to convulse and foam at the mouth, and he fell to the ground. Sometimes we think that when we approach Jesus, things are going to immediately get better. But the opposite is often true. Sometimes things get much worse. Sometimes the suffering increases. 
Sometimes we encounter Jesus and the pain goes away, but sometimes we encounter Jesus and the suffering compounds. It's as if the spirit in this boy knows that his end is near. He knows that he's in the presence of the Son of God and that he's about to meet his fate. And so he goes down swinging. If I'm going to go down, I'm going to take this kid with me. And so he tries to do as much damage as possible before he meets his end. But rather than immediately casting out the spirit, Jesus asks the father a question. Look at verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now we know from the rest of the Gospel of Mark that Jesus doesn't need to take a history of this boy in order to heal him. Jesus isn't a doctor. You know, doctors, they see someone, they observe the the issue going on with them, and they take a history. They want to find out more about them so that they can better treat them. Jesus doesn't need to do that. He can speak, and by the power of his word, he can accomplish whatever he desires. Calm the wind and the waves, cast out the demons. It doesn't matter. So why does he ask for the story? Why does he want to know what's been going on? I can't see inside the mind of Jesus, but I think it's safe to say that one of the reasons is that he wants the Father to confess his desperate state. He wants the Father to admit, to say it out loud, how great his need is for Jesus. Maybe he wants him to do that for his own sake. Maybe Jesus wants him to admit it for the sake of the crowd around them. But either way, he wants the Father to confess his desperate state. And the Father does. The Father, in short, says, it has been this way since childhood. That's not a lot of detail, but you can imagine from other things that we've seen in the book of Mark, right? Maybe the Father's taken him to a physician, and physicians in those days, not a lot of help, like the woman with the blood disease. Couldn't be healed. Maybe he went to a miracle worker, hoping that the miracle worker could do something, kind of like the Mesopotamian witch doctor of the day, and he couldn't. And then he goes to find Jesus, and Jesus isn't there, so he's like, okay, I'll try the disciples, and the disciples couldn't do anything. This issue has been going on for years. The Father says it's so bad that The Spirit tries to cast the boy into water and into fire to drown him or to burn him to death. The Spirit is trying to kill him. Can you imagine living with that for years on end? And then in the middle of verse 22, we read this from the mouth of the boy's father. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. All the fathers in the room understand. They understand this language. If you don't have a father, if you're not a father, imagine going to God on behalf of your father. You're desperate. If you can do anything, like a person going to a specialist, if you can do anything, please help us. There are a couple things that I want us to see here. The first is this. The father's faith is obviously weak. If you can, it's not the request of a man whose faith is immovable and rock solid. 
if you can, is the request of a man whose faith is barely alive. Patience. Patience Marie de Mars. Sit up right now. I don't want to see you move again. Love of a father. I imagine that part of the reason why the father's faith is so fragile is because of the disciples' failure. In verse 18, the father says, I asked your disciples to cast it out. But they couldn't. And then verse 22 says, if you can do anything. The disciples were the first one in whom Jesus had vested great authority. Shouldn't they have been able to get the job done? After the disciples' failed attempts, it seems like the Father's faith is shaken. These are your followers, but they couldn't do it. Now he's wondering if Jesus himself can do it. And so he says, if you can. Well, how many of us can say the same thing? How many of us have had our faith shaken because we've been hurt by the followers of Jesus? Because we've been misled by people who claim the name of Jesus Christ? How many times have we put our faith in the fallible followers of Jesus and put them on the same level as Jesus himself only to be disappointed and to have our faith in Jesus shaken? I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people, invited them to church, and they've told me, "Uh, no thanks, man, I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by Jesus' followers. And I get it, I was hurt by the church. But many of the people who say that they were hurt by the church or who had their faith shaken by Jesus' followers, many of them weren't even members of a church in the first place. They don't even really know what they're saying. They weren't members of a true church or they weren't members of a healthy church. Some of them were hurt because the church called them out on their sin. People don't like to be told the truth about themselves. A true church that loves you will tell you the truth about your sin. And that repels people. Brothers and sisters, we should remember that the gospel repels people just as much as it draws them in. Sometimes love feels like hate. And maybe a church that's trying to heal you makes you feel like it's trying to hurt you. But to be true, I mean, to be sure, many churches have hurt many people. But many are hurt because they put too much confidence in the followers of Jesus rather than in Jesus Christ himself. It is so important that every one of us know that any leader, any person claiming the name of Jesus Christ is fallible. That means they are capable of error. They are capable of failure. The greatest of men still have clay feet. David Platt, John Piper, whoever your hero is, you know, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, they're all mighty men of God with clay feet. Susanna Wesley, Martin Luther's wife, amazing women with clay feet. The strongest men are sinners. And the healthiest church is still a church full of people who are sinners, which means that it might let you down. It might hurt you. 
Jesus is the only hero that will never let you down, that will never disappoint you. The other thing that I want us to see here is this. The father's faith is weak, but he still has faith. He doesn't just take his son and go home after the disciples fail. He approaches Jesus. Like many people who have been let down by the church, but who still continue to pursue Christ, this man has been let down by the disciples, but he's still pursuing Christ. He's still hopeful, barely. The man is still moving towards Jesus. He's not moving away from him. And that's faith. A cry of desperation directed in nowhere in particular, in particular is a cry of faithlessness. But a cry of desperation directed towards Jesus is a cry of faith. And faith is exactly what's needed here. Jesus tells the man, all things are possible for him who believes. And then the father responds to that with what are perhaps some of the most comforting words of in all of Scripture. The Father says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And the wording is emphatic. It's, I believe. I do. Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And he goes, I believe. But help me. I believe, but help my unbelief. I can't help it. I'm doubting. I've been failed. I've been through the ringer. It's almost like he's saying, I think I believe. I want to believe. This is a shallow faith. An exhausted faith. A broken faith. A faith that's broken, almost extinguished, barely hanging on. But it is faith. The priest couldn't do anything. The doctors were helpless. The miracle workers were charlatans. The disciples were impotent. And after years and years of hope and disappointment and cycles of bitterness and distrust and desperation, the Father still clings to faith. He's vulnerable. He's transparent. He says, yes, you're right. Faith is needed, but I don't have very much to give, so please help me. Just notice that the Father knows that He can't conjure up enough faith within Himself. Faith isn't something that we can kind of just produce within our own hearts. It must be given to us by God. And this man knows that if he's going to overcome his unbelief, Jesus has to be the one to overcome it for him. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been where the Father is in today's text? Where you say, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. If you haven't been there, give it time. Doubt creeps in. Faith diminishes. Life in this fallen world blasts us from every angle. It leaves our faith crippled. You start to say... No, I haven't felt the presence of God in a very long time. Does he exist? Does he even exist? Am I just imagining things? The idea of a man being dead for three days and rising again from the grave by the power of the Spirit of God, it just starts to seem 
implausible. I know this. I've been there. I pray to God it doesn't happen, but I might be there again. But when we find ourselves here, we need to turn into God like this man. Not turn away from Him. We don't need to ball up and and shame in a corner and hide our doubts, hide our unbeliefs. Rather, we need to turn to Jesus Christ and ask Him to re-empower us to trust and to believe the Gospel. He doesn't hide His doubt. He doesn't put on airs. He's honest. He's vulnerable. And then He asks for help. Did you know that you can pray the same thing? How has your faith been lately? How has your walk been? Are you reading Scripture like you used to? Are you praying? Have little sins begun to creep back into your life? Maybe big sins? Pornography is something that you've started to grow uncomfortable with. You started to act like the unbelievers on your job rather than like Christ. All of that stems from faith issues. If you've been feeling this way, if you've been drifting in this direction, you don't have to run from Jesus in shame. And you don't have to run from the members of this church in shame. You need to run to Jesus in prayer. And you need to turn to your family. Cry out in desperation. Confess to us in tears. And say with the Father from this text, I believe, but help my unbelief. I want you to know that your faith in Jesus is always, always, always your greatest need. Jesus helped this Father understand this truth. You see, in verse 22, the Father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus says, well, all things are possible to him who believes. And then he says, I believe, help, help my unbelief. In one verse, the Father is asking for help for the thing that he thinks is his most pressing need. And in the next verse, Jesus has shown him that actually his most pressing need is worse than he could have ever imagined. His most pressing need is not his sick child. It's his faith in Jesus. And this is the main point of the sermon today. If you've kind of been drifting through the rest of it, hear this. Everyone needs to know that their greatest need, their most pressing need, is their faith in Jesus. It is your most pressing need. It is the disciples' most pressing need. It is Catherine Berger's most pressing need. Whether she lives or goes to be with the Lord, her faith is her most pressing need. Every single one of us came here this morning with a need. Some of us are dealing with things that are more pressing than others. Some of us have needs that are severe and immediate. But the 
the thing that we all need more than anything is to have our faith in Jesus Christ strengthened. I know that some days your faith feels invincible. You know, you feel like nothing can shake your faith in Jesus Christ. And then later, sometimes even the very next day, it feels like your faith is crumbling in your hands. You feel like you've lost your faith entirely. Do you know that Jesus has given us tools to help us build ourselves up in the faith, to be built up in the faith? It's true. As a matter of fact, if you were to cry out to Jesus, help my unbelief, he might say, well, I already have. In any number of ways. The Holy Spirit that's indwelling you, the Bible, his word that you have available to you, this church. Look around at the people sitting next to you. These people aren't here for decoration. This would be a very bad decoration job. None of these people are very much alike. But one of the reasons that God gave you these people in the pews next to you is for the strengthening of your faith. Listen to Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Holding fast to the confession is let us, let us maintain our faith, right, in the gospel, in Jesus. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the ways that we're built up in the faith that we, faith, that we hold fast to this confession is by meeting together. When you're struggling for faith and battling unbelief, you can tell someone, don't let Satan blind you or don't let your own misunderstanding of what Christianity is supposed to be confuse you. You don't have to stay silent. Let your brother or sister in Christ know where you are. Talk about your faith struggles. Be honest. Be vulnerable. Ask someone to pray for you, to read Scripture to you, to give you good books, to remind you of evidences of God's grace, of His real presence in your life in the past. You don't have to fight this battle alone. You were never meant to. You weren't saved into a vacuum where it's just you and God existing in a tube. You've been saved into a family. Now, Jesus is not physically present with you here today. But in a very real way, his body is. It's called the church. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body. And although he's not physically present, in a very real way, he is with us. And we are him. And his spirit is binding us together for the strengthening of our faith. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you should know that one of the best ways that you can come to understand who Jesus Christ is is by connecting to a church. Because you're getting to know that body. You're getting to know people who, although it's imperfect, they are still representing Jesus Christ. What is Jesus like? In a very imperfect way, you can know the answer to that if you look at a church. If you're here today and you're a Christian, and you're not a member of a church, 
not only are you probably in sin, but you are just really, 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 really missing out on a massive chunk of grace that God has made available to you. It's not easy to make it to heaven. And it's hard to do it alone. You're not meant to do it alone. It's okay to cry out to God for help. I'm not saying that we, should cry out to, we shouldn't cry out to God for our needs. We can cry out for financial help. We can cry out for marital help. We can cry out for family help. We can cry out for financial help. But don't forget to cry out for the most important thing, for spiritual help. What does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? What does it matter if you fix your finances you fix your marriage. You get your career back on path. And then you die and go to hell. What does it matter if you have all these earthly pleasures, but you don't get to know the pleasure of God by being with Him in eternity? One more thing should be noted about the Father's faith before we move on and close. Consider how crushing it must have been for the Father to hear these words from Jesus. All things are possible for him who believes. The man's standing there and he has almost no belief left to give. And Jesus says, hey man, no problem. You can do anything. You just have to believe. I can't even imagine. But here's the thing. The Father doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. I think the Father thinks that Jesus is saying, if you have enough faith. I think the Father thinks that Jesus is demanding a certain quantity of faith. But Jesus is not. In Matthew's account of this incident, later when Jesus is talking with the disciples, he tells them, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is very, 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 very tiny seed, then you can move mountains. Well, if that's true, it seems like Jesus is comment to the Father here is not meant to be a rebuke, but an encouragement. You can do it if you have faith. But the Father doesn't receive it as an encouragement. He receives it in despair because He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. He thinks Jesus is saying, I need the maximum volume of the highest grade faith you can conjure up in your heart. But Jesus is content with true faith, even if it's small faith. Even if it's faith small enough that if it, gets, if it falls out of your hand, it'll get lost on the floor. Brothers and sisters, it's not about the quantity of our faith. It's about the quality. And the quality of faith is a genuine trust in the true object of our faith. That's what makes faith valuable. It's the object of the faith that we're trusting in, not the quantity of it. The end of today's account goes like this. Jesus sees a crowd rushing up. He wants to avoid the spotlight, and so he quickly heals the boy. He casts the demon out. But before the spirit left, it convulsed violently. It tried to kill him. One last final affront. And it was so terrible that when the incident was over, everyone thought that the boy was dead. That's how severe it was. Read verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. 
But then Jesus takes the boy by the hand and he raises him up. Epilepsy, spiritually dark forces, demons, all of the effects of the fall collapse and die at the feet of Jesus. Ironically, Jesus himself will not escape the effects of the fall. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And on that cross, Jesus will not merely appear to be dead. He will not seem to be dead. He will die. Jesus can lift up this little boy because he himself would be lifted up. This boy only seemed to be dead, but Jesus really dies. Do you believe that? That Jesus Christ died and on the third day rose for the payment of your sins? I'm not asking if you believe that with every fiber of your being. I'm not asking if you believe that like the greatest faith in the world, like the mightiest men of faith. I'm asking if you believe it at all. If you just, if you have even a mustard seed's worth of faith that this is true. If you believe that it's true and if you've repented of your sins and if you've trusted in Christ, even with the weakest of faiths, you should know that God's grace is yours. And because Christ died, you will not have to die. Not eternally so. But if you don't believe this, friend, you should know that whatever need that you're experiencing right now in this life, it is certainly not your greatest need. Who is Jesus? Is he the Son of God who died for our sins, or is he just some religious character from history? Your answer to this question is the most important thing in the world, even if you don't feel the weight of it right now. One day, I guarantee you, I promise, I'll bet my house on it, you will close your eyes and you will breathe your last breath. And then, the weight and the urgency of your greatest need will become painfully clear to you. The reality of the sin of your unbelief will be all too real to you then. In that moment, if you are not in Christ, all of the other things that you spent your life worrying about, stressing over, all the things in your life that you thought were needs will seem to you as if nothing. And your great need for Jesus Christ will be all too real. You know, in order to become a Christian, you don't have to have all the answers. All you need to do is have faith and then act on that faith. To trust in what Jesus has said about himself and what he's done to save you from your sins. And then to repent of your sins. You don't have to have the highest pedigree of faith. You can say, even this morning with the Father, I believe and help my unbelief. To all my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, I want to close by saying this. We live at the bottom of the mountain. Last week, Jesus was at the Mount of Transfiguration. 
he was up there showing off a little bit of his glory. The disciples got to see a fraction of the eternal glory of Christ. It was a little scary, but it was amazing. It was peaceful. It was joyous. But as soon as the disciples descend from the mountain, they're back into the muck and the mire. They're back into sin and chaos and pain and death and destruction and demons and darkness. And that's where we live. We don't live on the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't get to behold the glory of Jesus Christ on a regular basis physically before our very eyes. We do behold the glory of God in nature and God's Word and the church and our children and in a thousand different ways, but we don't get to lay eyes on the glory of Jesus Christ like Moses and Peter and John and James. At the bottom of the mountain, our faith is going to be tested. We're going to be assaulted. We're going to be battered. We're going to be oppressed by demonic forces. And we are going to be tempted to disbelieve. And we still live in a faithless generation. Like the Israelites who were on their way to the promised land. The odds that all of us will make it there and that some of us won't die in the wilderness are not good. So I want to encourage you. I want to exhort you and challenge you. Don't grow weary in fighting for your faith. Don't grow weary in fighting for your faith. Stand firm in your faith. Exhort one another in the faith. Build each other up in the faith. Don't be like the unbelieving Israelites who fell in the desert. Make sure that there is not in you an unbelieving heart. And if you start to feel yourself moving in the direction of faithlessness, the direction of unbelief, cry out to Jesus. And like the Father say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are a great help. We know that you do not delight to see us waver and falter. And so we ask that you would strengthen us, individually and as a church. Strengthen our faith and help us to see our great need for you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.